Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Dismantling You podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Pineda. Today, I'm talking with Harvard lecturer, author, and speaker, Dr. Christopher Willard, about the power of mindfulness and meditation, how it can be used to let go of the past, to lead a more fulfilling life, and the sooner kids learn these practices, the better it is, and so much more. Chris is a psychologist and educational consultant based in Boston, specializing in mindfulness. He has been practicing meditation for 20 years and has led hundreds of workshops around the world with invitations to more than two dozen countries. He currently serves on the board of directors at the Institute for Meditation and Psychotherapy and is the president of the Mindfulness in Education Network. He has presented at TEDx conferences and his thoughts have appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and Mindful.org. He is the author of Child's Mind, Growing Up Mindful, Raising Resilience, and eight other books for parents, professionals, and children, along with six sets of cards and therapeutic games, available in more than 10 languages. He teaches at Harvard Medical School. So before we get started, if you are new to the podcast, be sure to subscribe to be notified when new episodes release. And don't forget to leave a five-star review. The more reviews and shares that we get, the more people we can reach, and you never know when an episode can impact someone's life. Stay tuned now for my conversation with Dr. Christopher Willard. You know, I often share when I was a kid, I never heard the word mindfulness, but, you know, I think for a lot of us, we've had experiences, something like mindfulness. And, and for me, that was being in nature, going to nature camp and then saying, let's, let's walk in the woods as silently as we can. Let's listen to all the sounds of the forest. And my dad just saying, let's, you know, watch the clouds going by in the sky. And then, you know, these were such treasured, peaceful, present oriented memories for me. And when, you know, grew up and all of that and, and, and off to college. And when I was in college, I actually really started struggling with mental health issues, depression, anxiety, major substance abuse, and, and took a number of years off. And basically my parents ended up dragging me onto a, a retreat with Thich Nhat Hanh back in 1998, 1999, something like that. Um, my life just totally transformed. Uh, suddenly things made sense to me. Suddenly I felt the glimmer of, of happiness and hope. I felt creative and calm and like I could focus in different ways. And, and I really, I, you know, I felt happier. I felt less anxious. I, I stopped um, doing drugs and alcohol and, uh, you know, was just so inspired from there to continue my own practice. And then really, I think, you know, like so many people that discover something powerful, right? I wanted to share this with other people. So I started going on retreats, started trying to tell everybody about mindfulness and then did a number of different things. I worked as a teacher for a few years and um, became a, a clinical psychologist. And, you know, since then I've done a lot of um, continuing my own practice and then 
writing more and teaching more. And um, it's been, yeah, just a crazy journey these, these last 20 years or my whole life really has been kind of a crazy journey, but it's, it's amazing the twists and turns and, and where I am and twists and turns too, but it's been, yeah, really, really surprised journey. <laughs> That's yeah. amazing. And so I know that uh, traveling um, is something you really are passionate about. How did that come about? Yeah. Yeah, you know, I'm trying to think. I, you know, th that's been a, a really important part of my life and understanding and just kind of doing a podcast the other day and someone asked, what's, you know, what, what advice do you have for people? And I said, travel. But, you know, it started, you know, my family traveled a little bit when I was growing up. And um, I remember just, you know, taking a trip with a friend of mine to, to Central America and suddenly thinking, oh my gosh, this is amazing just to be able to travel anywhere. And then throughout graduate school, what I would do is I would, you know, my colleagues were getting internships and that kind of thing. And I would like, you know, flip my apartment, put all my stuff in storage and, and take that money and just go travel around Southeast Asia for six weeks or around Latin America or India or that. And it became a total, you know, really almost obsession and, and continues to be. Unfortunately, now we're in this pandemic where there's not a lot of travel going on. And not only do I get paid to travel, but I get, you know, paid to travel to amazing places, meet such interesting people, talk about mindfulness and other contemplative practices and 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 then people, okay, what are aspects of, of mindfulness that's really universal? What are some aspects of it that are more you know, kind of culture by culture. How does it adapt? How does it evolve in places? How do we translate the language of mindfulness, but also even just how do we translate this stuff culturally? And it's just been such an incredible gift and to, to then feel like I've got all over the world um, and, and just these wonderful, wonderful opportunities to go such interesting places and, and meet such interesting people. And it's fascinating to hear that you went on a, in, you know, a, a retreat with your parents at such a young age. So you discovered <laughs> meditation early on. What was that like? And did you, did, did it resonate with you early on or later in life? It did back, you know, back then when I was young, I think it just, you know, I was in such a difficult place in my personal life. I think really it was the first piece I many many years and and suddenly feeling a real connection to to other people feeling not so alone with you know my own pain and suffering um that there were other people on that retreat who i i related to uh, feeling connected in other ways just to to you know really to you know to, to the just to, you know humans in general i think suddenly you know, Thich Nhat Hanh so much emphasizes what he calls interbeing, right? The ways that we're all so closely interconnected more than we realize and really seeing the impact that my own suffering was having on other people and some of my own behavior was having on other people. And likewise, how, you know, other people were impacting me and um, seeing just how, how, how fragile our human interconnection was um, and also how empowering it could be to feel so connected. And so that to me was part of what I think felt so transformative. And it's, you know, this was back when Thich Nhat Hanh was doing a few, leading a few retreats in the US every year and, you know, hundreds of people and, you know, people of all different backgrounds and all different ages. And, you know, yet everyone's coming to that, you know, because you know, mostly people find 
mindfulness and meditation, not because everything's going great in their life and they want to add something, right? But because they have some of their own, you know, suffering or challenges. And so feeling so held by that community, feeling so connected, um, it just was so inspiring to me. And, and so that's, that's where it then really kind of lit the fire in me um, for wanting to practice more. And his, you know, his practices are so you know, a lot of the time was spent, you know, of course, in sitting meditation and kind of stillness, but, you know, there's also in, in his teachings, it's, it's, it's mindful walking and walking meditation, it's mindful eating and eating meditation and just bringing that quality of attention and awareness to everything that we do. And that to me at that time felt in many ways more accessible than just sitting on a cushion, although I was also really trying to do that as well. Um, <laughs> But being able to be inspired with how do we do this in the world and, and off the cushion, not just you know sitting still in some meditation studio or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So that said, Chris, uh, how did these mindfulness practices um, open you up and break and break you free from those limiting beliefs? These were just, you know, so much of it was just stories my mind was telling me and. Maybe they were true, maybe they weren't, but they became much less, not, not so much intense, but like I didn't have to believe all these stories that my mind was telling me that, you know, I, I'd have picked up along the way, either from growing up or from other people or just my brain chemistry was sending them out to me, right? But that, you know, I didn't have to believe this stuff, right? There's the, you know, don't believe everything you think bumper sticker. So that became really profound. Um, and then I think also just seeing, you know, really seeing the impact of, of, of community. Um, I think there was something really special about um, that whole community and seeing, seeing how what I did impacted other people, the choices I was making impacted other people. And that somehow resonated that particular week in a way that it, you know, maybe it even wouldn't have two weeks later or two weeks earlier, but I was just in the right place at the right time. And suddenly it really resonated for me um, that that kind of important fabric of, of connection that I was a part of and that I, I really wanted to be then part of for, you know, to, to kind of show up for the world, to be a force for good in the world. Um, and I, I wish I had kind of better words to describe it, but there was something about that that really I found particularly transformative for myself. Yeah. yeah. Sure. So you know, the word compassion is so thrown out there nowadays. And, you know, some <laughs> sure. of us, yeah, right. And so, you know, some of us understand it. And for those who just, you know, understand it on a surface level, can you give us a little bit more insight? Yeah, to me, compassion, I think, is, is not is, 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 you know, we all Hopefully most of us who aren't sociopaths, right? We see suffering and we have some kind of emotional response. And, and that to me is empathy and compassion is really then, you know, that drive to then keep turning toward that suffering and alleviate that suffering, not just to experience it. Because sometimes we see suffering in others or we see it in ourselves and we just, we, we wanna turn away because it's too much. It's, it's overwhelming. Um, is that, it's, it's, it really is in, in, in a lot of mindfulness and compassion circles, people talk about it, you know, it really should be a verb, right? It's how do we turn toward and alleviate that suffering in others or in ourselves. And so it's that motivation to take action to alleviate that suffering. Um, and so I feel very fortunate that I've been able to 
you know, find ways, ad adapt practices, kind of translate work to help people alleviate their their suffering. And um, and and I've and, and mostly just based on my own experience for what's worked for me in terms of turning toward and alleviating my own suffering in in ways that have been lasting, right? Not just kind of fleeting and momentary. So um, yeah, so to me, compassion is really about seeing suffering, feeling that, uh, you know, that pain of other people, and then having that drive to keep turning toward it and keep, keep alleviating that suffering that we see in the world. That's, that's really true compassion to me. I love that. So Chris, you've done two TEDx talks and you've written some books on breathing and, um, you know, raising resilience. Uh, what, Mm -hmm. What do parents do to help kids cultivate um, patience? Yeah, patience is a tough one. <laughs> I think, um, you know, both for kids and, and for parents. And, and, you know, we live in this world where we don't need to have a lot of patience. We don't really need to delay gratification, right? I, you know, I often kind of talk about when I, when I was growing up, right? If, if dinner ended at 5.45 and Mr. Rogers didn't come at six o'clock, my sister and I had to entertain ourselves for 15 minutes, you know, and now it's like dinner ends and I can just, you know, hit the iPad and Daniel Tiger is just, you know, singing away to my, to my kids. Um, you know, let alone if I went to watch the Wizard of Oz, I had to wait a whole year, right? And wait for it to come on TV. And, you know, so we can these days almost always get what we want, you know, within 24 hours with, you know, prime, you know, drone delivery or whatever. So it's lacking. And, and I think, you know, it's, it's really patience is a muscle. Um, and we can also think of it in more clinical terms as delayed gratification, right? It's kind of a similar word to patience, um, just in a more clinical way. But I think teaching our kids, right, how to, how to wait for things, how to entertain themselves when they're bored is actually an incredible, it's unpleasant, but it's actually an incredible human opportunity where our brains just sort of start you know, looking for some kind of problem to solve. And then ultimately we do learn how to entertain, how to solve a problem. Um, but of course it's, you know, kids don't like being bored. We adults don't like being bored, right? We also increasingly need constant stimulation. So it's really practicing. And I think it's time out. It's taking, you know, screen time breaks or screen sabbaticals. We might kind of think of them. It's, um, you know, spending time doing a range of different kinds of activities um, for kids. It's it's doing it, it's doing multi-step activities. They're going to take a lot of time and patience. It might take, you know, hours or even days to finish something, but to do a little bit of work to put in toward a finished product. Those kinds of things are actually really teaching kids patience and delayed gratification and all those things that we want them to grow up with, not only because it makes our lives easier as parents, but because the research really shows the kids who are able to delay gratification, those kids generally tend to succeed. And by succeed, I don't just mean like high paying jobs. I mean, like they succeed at their relationships. They succeed in happiness. They succeed at, you know, being, being productive members of society, you know, not just in terms of, you know, the financial picture, but in terms of being, you know, real contributors. Um, so it is, it's really important that we figure out how to cultivate this stuff in ourselves and in our kids and modeling it too, right? Can we model our own patients um, is I think key. 
I love that. That's very, that's powerful advice, very valuable. And so we're both um, parents and, you know, these times are rough um, to say the least. What (laughs) exactly? So can you give some suggestions? You know, we're able to draw upon like our background, you know, we we have a mindfulness background, but for those parents who don't, or, you know, even, you know, I, I teach yoga. It's not so easy for me to just tell my kid when he's having like a meltdown or a panic attack, just breathe, or, you know, just sit in the corner right. and meditate. I mean, can you um, give some tips for parents out there? All the time, like, well, what's the best mindfulness thing for a kid who's having a panic attack or a meltdown? And, and really to me, what it keeps coming back to is, the best thing for that kid is 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 not is, is really your mindfulness practice, right? It's not, not theirs. It's can you stay calm? Can you stay compassionate, connected, creative, even while they're really struggling? Because as soon as they see you, right, tense up, or they see you panic as well, or or look overwhelmed, right? That only then adds fuel to the fire, right? And so what we want to do is is self-regulate ourselves basically. <laughs> and, and what we can do in turn when, when once we connect with them, right, is then what we do is, is we call this co-regulation, right? Where we really, in fact, kind of align with our mirror neurons and all that stuff, right? So that we're really emotionally connected with our kids. And then as we start to settle ourselves down, we can connect. And even, you know, if it's hard to connect in that moment, you know, kids and parents, we're, we're going to get into conflicts. We're going to have riffs, all that kind of thing. That's normal. It doesn't make you a bad parent or doesn't make a kid a bad kid. What's most important, you know, after a difficult moment is that we're there and present to reconnect to, right? So they have that meltdown. And as soon as they do settle down, we're right there to say, you know, it's okay, right? You know, I'm not mad at you. I was just scared. I was overwhelmed also, right? To reconnect. They have that safe, safe place, safe connect to. And that really comes with our own ability to, to stay calm and connected during that. And then also like, you know, again, I'm always sort of, you know, like, don't tell your kid to breathe in the middle of the meltdown because they'll just get, you know, they'll, you know, throw a plate at you or who knows what, right. But like, we're kind of modeling that, you know, like, look, we both got kind of upset together. Why don't we both take a few breaths together? Or we just start and see if they want to join us right? Then we have a, a chance of doing it. But if we're just telling them it's on them to do, they can't do that. You know, maybe an adult can, right? Although if an adult is that dysregulated, they probably can't. But like what we're sending is the message of we do this together until you learn how to do this and internalize this yourself. And that's the only way they will learn how to internalize it themselves is with this co-regulation thing when they're young, then it becomes internalized, then they can do it themselves. So it, it takes it takes time, right? Um, so I, I do think you know, this is this is really my approach is is to to work with parents um, and as a therapist you know parents come in fix my kid right happens all the time and you know to me it's like like I'll do what I can but this is everybody's job here <laughs> and I say that in front of the kids I'm like you know I'm going to give you some advice but my job is also to talk to your parents and give them feedback and they have to be on board for making changes too. Is that okay, mom? Is that okay, dad? Or whoever the parents might be, right? So that feels really important to me that it, that it really starts actually, in fact, with the parents and, and their own learning and, and willingness to learn um, is really key to the whole thing. I love hearing that. That really resonates with me. 
so can you tell us like for mindful, um, do you suggest the same mindfulness practice to all your patients or does it vary? You know, it kind of, it kind of varies, um, you know, depending on the age, depending on the kids, depending on who, you know, little kids, you know, stuff out of like my, my alpha breaths book, like do some, you know, alligator breaths, breathing in, <laughs> breathing out, or some hot chocolate breaths, breathe in, breathe out, cooling off. Right, these are wonderful for younger kids. You know, it's gonna be hard to get a 15 year old to do alligator breaths. <laughs> Right. I love you know, that. For teenagers, maybe. <laughs> and, you know, I just want to yeah. let our listener know, uh, Chris, that, uh, you know, they obviously can't see us, but Chris demonstrated like, you know, alligator jaws and like a cup of hot cocoa. So those are really helpful visualization techniques. I love that. That's so unique. Yeah. 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 And, and kids have fun with it. And then I think to practice that when things are going well, like do that before dinner, do that stuff before bed. So that when that tough moment does come, the meltdown, the panic attack comes, you know, we can say, let's do some hot chocolate breaths together. And the kid's not like, what's a hot chocolate breath, right? But it's like, you know, mom or dad or whoever, right? And the kid maybe wants to join in, you know, because maybe they don't, they're not ready to connect kind of emotionally yet, but they want to connect maybe physically just by doing something, right? together and then maybe they can start to connect with their words after that and so that also feels like an entree in to reconnect too and then older kids maybe something different a visualization you know mindfully listen to music right who knows who knows what you know for for a teenager but that's maybe a different a different thing and of course teenagers are a different challenge than uh the kids yeah, yeah. and how about for adults yeah for adults and you know one of the practices I've been coming back to again and again during, um, especially during the pandemic, when, you know, I think every parent feels totally inadequate, feels totally like they're the parent doing a better job. And, you know, I think just really normalizing for parents, like, hey, this is really hard for all of us. Single parent who feels like they're nailing this pandemic <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, actually that, that thing where we feel so different, we feel so isolated. I'm the only parent that's screwing this up. Actually, that's the thing that connects us. Every parent is feeling totally inadequate. I can prop that every parent who walks through my door from like, you know, like fancy, you know, CEOs to artists, to professors, to, you know, like all kinds of people are feeling like they are not parenting well in this pandemic. And so to be able to connect and feel that common humanity and compassion, part of what that's about is what we call self-compassion, which is you know, work that's been really studied and developed by Chris Germer and Kristen Neff. But as parents, we just, you know, to give ourselves a bit of a break to forgive ourselves for those small mistakes. Okay, you know what? You know, my kid watched, you know, an extra show last night. That doesn't make me the worst parent in the world, right? You know, I burned dinner. They had macaroni and cheese for the third night in a row you know what, that's fine. <laughs> like they're, they're alive, <laughs> right? I lost my temper a little bit. And just being, you know, learning how to forgive ourselves for these little, you know, little, little imperfections. And, and it's really okay. Um, and, and knowing that we're not alone, I think can really help. Um, 
you know, everyone else's pandemic is, you know, is not like, it, it looks different than it does on Facebook, right? It's like a lot more, you know, messy than, uh, than it might appear that every, everyone's family is just baking sourdough bread and taking nature walks all the time, right? Exactly. So Chris, just to switch gears on you, has this been a great year for you or have you had to pivot? What would you say is, you know, what would you say has been the biggest challenge so far? Yeah, I feel incredibly lucky. Um, you know, I have a job that that transferred relatively easily to Zoom, um, which not everyone that's true for. Um, you know, I kept my office. So, you know, starting in kind of like late spring, early summer, I just went to my office to do Zoom calls because the kids are kind of bouncing off the walls. I feel very lucky we've held care a few days a week. My wife and I both have flexible jobs. So I feel, you know, really lucky. And it's 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 been a real mix. You know, there's a ton that I really miss. I feel alone. I miss hanging out with people, especially as winter sets in, you know, having friends over for dinner or going out to the movies and things like that. Um, you know, having for my kids, you know, uh, you know, that's, that's been tough at the same time, as we started out the conversation, I travel a lot for work. I was supposed to, I was, I think I was literally supposed to go to 12 countries this year. You know, I've only left the state of Massachusetts once and that was to go to Vermont. Right. So I haven't done as much travel, but that's been, you know, amazing. I've been, home with the kids, you know, I've had dinner at home every night, which is, you know, usually I have one or two late nights a week. And, um, you know, that's been really wonderful and, and a lot of time with the kids, which is wonderful. And it's exhausting, right? Both of those things are absolutely true, right? We've made some bread and it's been a disaster sometimes and it's been fun other times. And, you know, the, the kids whine and groan every time we go on a nature walk but you know they've also had some really nice times once we're out there so it's been such a mix of different different things and i think just staying open to whatever you know whatever is coming in our way i've been you know kind of often describing like i you know i usually get to you know take a few walks in really amazing places for you know traveling for work and I'm mostly just walking around my neighborhood, but I'm really getting to appreciate the architecture. I'm really noticing, you know, each day how the trees, you know, smell different. And, you know, as the, the leaves start to fade and change colors, like, so I know my own neighborhood more intimately, but I also do miss traveling and, you know, whether it's on my own or whether it's with my family. So, you know, it's, you know, I feel very lucky, you know, uh, not only has it been relatively easy for me financially, um, and, and logistically, but it's also, you know, I, I also feel lucky on top of that, that I also have the tools that allow me to appreciate it for, for what it is. So it's, it's both luck and privilege and it's, you know, some degree of, of having tools, you know, going back 20 some years from when I started, um, my own mindfulness and contemplative practice. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm so looking forward to the world going something like normal though. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> me too. Can you share with us some of your self-care routines and has it changed? I mean, what, what's your favorite breathing technique or um, meditation? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, you know, I certainly don't go to the gym these days, um, but I've been taking so many more walks. You know, one of the things I try to do is when I've got phone calls, which I often have for work, is I just try to take a walk while I do that phone call unless it's pouring rain. So I'm getting some exercise. I'm, I'm being outside. I try to get outside every single day. It feels really important to not be trapped inside. Um, 
you know, trying to, you know, eat healthfully, you know, doing a lot of cooking these days, certainly trying new recipes. Um, you know, these things are fun. And then with, with me, I've actually been struck by things I had always wanted to do with my family, but life was too hectic. And now that things are in some ways, in some ways each day is a little bit more predictable, you know, but the day can be predictable, but getting into some family routines, like I always wanted to practice gratitude every night with the kids and, you know, it never quite worked out. And then once the pandemic started and, you know, I was, you know, finished work around the same time every night, which it didn't used to be the case, right? We now do every night, we do roses and thorns with my son. So we talk about a few roses of nice things that happened in the day. Like, who knows what, um, you know, got to have a play date and, you know, my son read a, you know, like read his first book, you know, out loud to, to his little sister today. And, um, you know, then we got to have a nice dinner, right? Those might be some roses, a thorn might be, right? The kids got in a big argument in the bathtub, which tends to happen every night. Uh, a bud for tomorrow, like, what do I hope for tomorrow? Well, you know, I hope that tomorrow is a, um, a day where I get to get outside and, and take a walk with a friend of mine. So that then, you know, this becomes part of the ritual. And, and you know, my son's six. You know, I'm sure in five years when I say, let's do roses and thorns, at some point his eyes are going to roll back into his head and he'll be like, <laughs> but he'll have the practice of doing this and internalizing this. And even if I ask him and he doesn't answer, he'll still be asking himself that question. And it'll become an internalized habit, right? That, that he'll do for himself, whether he rolls his eyes at us and refuses to answer. I think that'll be a really beautiful thing for him growing up in a nice way that we've connected as a family. Um, and then hopefully he'll pass that on to his own kids at some point. So these kinds of things have become really, you know, nice opportunities for new rituals during this pandemic um, as far as self-care care um, too. So, yeah. I love that. And, you know, uh, before I let you go, Chris, I'd love for you to tell our viewers where they can find you online if they'd like to connect with you. Absolutely. So um, you can find me, my website is just drchristopherwillard.com, drchristopherwillard.com. Um, I'm very lazy about updating my calendar of events though, I have to say. Um, and then you can, you can actually find kind of the most on Instagram, just Chris Willard, at Dr. Chris Willard um and, and and twitter and facebook and i i do a, a monthly challenges there so november has been uh, or was um a gratitude challenge every day a little gratitude december a generosity prompt january will be a mindful eating prompt which we might be looking for in the new year um things like that and um and announcements about different workshops i'm doing for parents and uh, professionals and um, new books coming out, things like that. A couple new, um, a few new courses coming out next year as well. So hope people can can check that stuff out as well. Perfect, Chris. I'll be sure to include all that information in the show notes. I want to thank you again for your willingness, for all the good that you're doing in the world. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you so much, Lisa. This has been really, this has been lovely. Yeah, thank you. I 
I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Chris and it brought small shifts in your mindset that can make a difference. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a five-star review. Thank you for listening. Until next time, here's to dismantling you.